Well, I'll give you a moment to open up your copy of the scriptures to Titus chapter 2. That's where we find ourselves again this morning as these children are dismissed. It's my joy to open up that passage with you. You'll recall, perhaps, from the last time that I had opportunity to preach from this text, that we saw an overview of chapter 2, what the main point of that chapter was. And in that chapter, we noticed that there was a contrast that Paul called Titus to in relation to what it was that he should teach as he led people and equipped people himself to lead the church on Crete. Whereas the false teachers on Crete were modeling and teaching both legalism on the one hand and lawlessness on the other, Titus was to be a model of good works as he taught what accorded with not corruption but sound doctrine. It was clear, I hope, from our study last time that the church on Crete needed more than just instruction in sound doctrine, you know, the facts of the gospel. They needed more than that. The church on Crete, like the church here today, needed godly leadership who would provide practical instruction in what life should look like in light of the truths that they were taught as part of that sound doctrine. Titus and the elders he appointed needed to teach certain things to ensure that those who profess to know God would actually live in such a way as to demonstrate it but what they did and did not do. You recall at the end of chapter 1 that there was the statement about the false teachers and those who followed them. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Their lives made it evident that they wanted nothing to do with God's rule in their lives at all. I think Denny Burke, he's a commentator that I was reading, but his words summarize the reality that is so helpful here. He says, and this is a challenge to all of us who minister God's word, any minister of the gospel who knows sound doctrine but is unable to instruct God's people in how to live their lives in accord with such doctrine will not be an effective minister of the word. Titus must be able to address believers in every station of life with practical instructions for godly living. The believers on Crete, as the believers here today, must receive instruction in how to live to reflect the gospel truths that they believe. So I think those words capture well the heart of what Paul is trying to say to Titus as he writes this letter. Remember, as we've looked at this book so far, that we've observed that the overarching theme of the letter is that God's people would live in such a way as to not only profess to know certain things, but live to show the world that they actually believe them, that Jesus Christ is actually transforming people through what they believe and live out in the day-to-day. I want us to keep that big overarching theme in view as we go through this sermon today and as you read Titus for yourselves. God wants us to show how glorious his salvation is by how we live. We ought to be, if I can use the phrase, human billboards for the transforming power of the gospel. So it's along those lines that we said last time that the convictions that we hold about who Christ is and what he has done for us should drive the content of our teaching in the church about how we should live in response. We see those convictions that Abe just read in verses 11 to 14 
And we see what we'll dip into today from verses 2 to 10 about how to live in light of what we believe as that gospel foundation is given. So this morning, I want to begin walking more methodically through chapter 2, not just an overview, but verse by verse. And I want us to glean insight into what our lives ought to look like on the basis of the gospel that we believe. We're going to see, as we look at verses 2 and 6, six marks of a godly man. Six marks of a godly man. Now, as I begin that study... I would ask a question of the men in our midst. And all the women are like, whew, I don't have to listen. Don't worry. Verses 3 to 5 are addressing women directly. I don't want the women among us to switch off. You're all mature enough, I'm sure, to understand it. As men are preached to, as children are addressed by the word of God, the Spirit works to convict of sin and to grow us in Christ-likeness. But this text is specifically regarding older men and verse number 6, younger men, So let me ask you men, I include myself in the mix, are you and I striving with the Lord's help to be holy as he is holy? Because that's what this text will call us to this morning. Will we be found walking with the Lord, striving to be holy as he is holy? Paul lists in verse number two, six marks of a godly man that Titus must exhort the men on Crete toward if they would be found faithful to Jesus Christ. And I simply want to walk through the verses. I want us to be careful not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers also, lest we be deceived this morning. I want to address, again, the women, because I want us to consider this text in a very biblically balanced way. There is no doubt that the text addresses the men in our midst, and uh, some of you are married to Christian men. That is wonderful. We've seen you grow together in the gospel as you have both applied it to your lives. We praise God for the transformation that comes through a godly woman's influence in her husband's life. Sometimes we can listen to sermons that are based on bullet points like this, where we're honing in on specific do's and don't do's, And we can be elements of discouragement in one another's lives as opposed to elements of encouragement. Some of us can at times be tempted to take a a list of character qualities like this and go into whack-a-mole mode. Let me explain what I mean by that. Just like the mole in that game whack-a-mole, when he puts his head up and you come along with a plastic mallet, you want to whack it back down because that's the name of the game. I want us to avoid that here as we see character deficiencies in the brothers in this church and perhaps our husbands. I want us to avoid going into that mode of ministry that spots sin in the lives of others, especially those closest to us, and tries to whack it with a sledgehammer. I want us to be cautious as we go through this and and the following studies together. On the one hand, we can never argue that the Lord calls us to holy living. That is clear. We're to be holy as he is holy. There's no doubt that there are texts in Scripture, like 1 Thessalonians 5.14, that we may at times have to admonish a brother because he is being unruly. He's walking out of step with the Lord's will for his life. And the body of Christ comes along and says, Brother, please listen to what I'm saying. I'm talking to you in love. You can't go down that path. 
Please hear the word of God applied to your life. Please stop going down that path for the sake of Jesus Christ and his gospel. No doubt that brother is called to lead his wife, serve his church, and work hard for his employer for the sake of Christ's name. So we ought not to waver on the fact that we're going to call sin, sin. But be that as it may, I want us to proceed through this study remembering all of our gospel convictions. Let me explain that as I read to you verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. That says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Hear the call there to godly living. But let me help you zoom in on that phrase, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I want us to remember as we proceed here how patiently the Lord trains us by his grace. I want us to remember how patiently the Lord deals with each of us. We certainly need the reminder here. I certainly need the reminder. The Lord, is he not far more patient than I am? Probably far more patient than you are. And he patiently trains us by his grace. So that as we take a text like this, we certainly want to hold it up and stick to the truths that it teaches. But we want to do so in a, in a way that reflects his patience. So if you see character deficiencies in your spouse or some other brother in the church... Please proceed carefully and lovingly as you point them out, if indeed you need to point them out. I would argue that you should point them out, but with loving wisdom. And with obvious exceptions like grievous public scandalous sin, we want to pray, we want to study our Bibles, we want to seek counsel about how and when to confront that erring brother. We want to let the Spirit of God do his work. And seek to spur our brothers on in the good that you and I are seeing in their lives. Paul tells Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 5.1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. And so the word encourage there has more to say than just giving him a timely word and a pat on the back and a thank you for being a godly example. It's certainly not less than that, but it's more. We may need to urge or to appeal him toward obedience, but let us not disregard the importance of a word in season that says, my brother, I love you and I really appreciate the godly example that you are to me. That's the tone with which I want us to proceed through this study. Let's look at our text together. Titus 2, verse 2 says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We also read further along in verse number 6, as he addresses younger men, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. If you have your Bibles open, you'll be able to see the flow of thought there. The word likewise connects us back to what he has just said, insisting that younger women, in verse 5, be taught to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And I think it's the common call to self-control that draws his use of that word likewise, as he says, younger women be self-controlled. Likewise, younger men be self-controlled. But I don't think it's inappropriate to connect it to the thought that he's concerned about the word of God being reviled. Remember that the thrust of Paul's letter again is to ensure that right thinking or right believing, right doctrine is connected to right doing. 
And so the call to self-control to the end that the word of God may not be reviled is so important here as these younger men alongside the younger women put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ and its transforming effect in the church. Let's look at the first mark together. One of the wonderful things about the gospel is that salvation in Christ is available to people of all ages. Do you ever think about that? I won't ask you to put up your hands, but you can imagine yourself doing that. Who here got saved in older age? We know men, women who are now in glory, who lived life squandering all of the blessings that God was giving. Jesus Christ met them along the way, and at an old age, they proclaimed faith in Christ. He saved them, began that wonderful work of transformation. Christ came in to save sinners of every kind and in all age groups. We see from Titus verse or Titus 2, verse 2, that that includes older men. And as Paul was writing, he had in mind people who were typically 50 to 60 years old. He says that older men must be taught, among other things, to be sober-minded. That's the first mark of a godly man that I want us to see. You can imagine, perhaps, that the older man saved out of that godless culture in Crete would have to come to know how to live in accordance with what Jesus Christ had saved him to be. He needed practical instruction, being sober-minded, among other things. Perhaps some of them had been saved out of drunkenness. Perhaps some of them had been saved out of a word of sexual immorality. Whatever it was, they were old men. Christ had met them along the way, and he had completely transformed them as he had given them newness of life. The culture on Crete, as we've seen before was known to be lazy and undisciplined. So men saved at an older age probably knew everything about being lazy and nothing about living for the Lord. People were known on Crete to be evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Think of that culture. But older men who were given to extremes and deadened by that self-indulgence were now called to follow Jesus Christ and live for him. They needed to be taught to put on sober-mindedness. This is to be temperate, not given to excesses. And think of how we can be excessive in our lives. Think of what we can give ourselves to that would be marked by excess. Overeating, oversleeping, overspending, getting drunk, or as the world around us today celebrates so much, getting high on whatever type of substance there is available. Rather, for this man marked by sober-mindedness, there is to be settled, serious restraint about his life that comes from the renewing of his mind, submitting himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ as he learns God's purpose for his life. Now, alongside that mark of a godly man in Titus 2, verse 2, we see a call for older men to be dignified. Older men are to be dignified. So in contrast to the culture that he would have been raised in, what we just described as ungodly, full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, an older man was to live in such a way as to be dignified, demonstrating himself to be worthy of respect. He should be honorable, marked by godly character. And in the midst of various trials and temptations, especially... What this man is to say, what this man is to do, should mark 
a settled submission to Jesus Christ and a transformation of character that really comes through a diligent study of the Word of God so that he would know how to act, how to respond when life wasn't going his way. We've used this phrase already, but he was called as a godly man, dignified in every way, to be holy as his God is holy. As you continue on in that verse, look at verse number two with me again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. The next phrase is self-controlled. This quality, as we'll see, is very much related to his thought life, his thoughtfulness, how he thinks about situations and who he is in them. An older man, according to this text, is called to think rightly about who he is and what Christ has done for him. He is prudent and sensible, able to consider what the best response should be in any given situation based on what he knows the will of God to be. One commentator describes this as depicting a measured restraint in all things. Measured as in needing six ounces instead of four and filling a cup to be that amount because you've considered that you need more than less or perhaps less than more, as the case may be. There's a measured restraint. That would be the opposite of behavior that might be regarded as foolish or, as the culture knew it, as cretin. Listen to this definition from another source, intent on the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. The what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. I really love that phrase. I'm going to camp out. I'm going to reuse that a couple of times as we go on because I really want us to understand the practicality of what self-control demands of us as godly men and women. Imagine that man with me for a second that older man that people look to in the Cretan church who has proved himself to be in obedience to Scripture, albeit imperfectly, self-controlled. He has become like Christ to the point that he is going to do what he should, how he should do it, at the time it should be done to bring God ultimate glory. How many golf games, fishing trips, spending sprees, and movie marathons would be canceled if this Christ-like character governed our way of living? A godly man is to be marked by self-control as we learn to curb our own desires in favor of knowing and doing God's will, which often involves giving up what we would like to do ourselves for the benefit of another. We'll say more about that. This man, it seems, would learn to say with Jesus, nevertheless, what I will, but, Father, as you will. That's that settled restraint. Now walk with me as we picture this godly man who is known in his church to be Self-controlled. I'll illustrate it in terms of what an older man would have learned over time and what he might now tell a younger man who is looking to his example. He's old now, but he started out young. He's more wise now. He started out foolish. He earned a good wage as a young man. He spent much money foolishly. In fact, the time and the money he had together 
were all about himself. That's how he applied them in life. It was all about him. As a young believer, he got married to the one he thought was the love of his life. But as they, he and his wife, proceeded together, it became very apparent in pretty much all of life that life was actually all about him, not about Christ or his wife. He was found embracing a manner of living that demonstrated that his life was actually more about getting what he wanted than what Christ demanded of him. God brought men into this man's life who taught him about the grace of Jesus Christ. And, praise God, over time, he began to walk in that newness of life that he had been called to. He began to see the error of his ways in insisting on so many nights out with his work colleagues, so many nights out and trips with his friends, all at the expense of the relationship with his young wife. You see, for so long, he had no regard for what his young wife wanted. In fact, he had no regard for what the Lord wanted in his life, how he might love her as Christ loved the church. Nevertheless, he was confronted with the problem of using his time and money for himself when his dear young bride stayed alone at home with their dog. As years passed, picture the scene with me, children came along. That didn't help. Because he, whereas he lived with himself before, wanted to live for himself even more, despite the fact, despite the need for his wife, or to give his wife the help. It turns out that the dog wasn't able to love her like Christ loved the church. We could say more about the younger man's life and the growth that he experienced. But as he looks back on his life now as a godly older man in the church, think of what, he, what ministry he could have in the younger man's life that he would come alongside. My brother, I know it's hard, he might say. I've been there. But consider your calling. See the Lord's call on your life. To live not for yourself, but for Christ who has given his life for you. Take care to love your wife and your children. Seek help to ensure that you're actually doing God's will. Learn what you need to be doing and how to do it when it's needed. Seek God's grace to grow in self-control. If I can use that term that we've seen as a definition for self-control, he's going to tell this young brother, be intent on the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. Learn to be self-controlled. What a difference our lives, what a difference in how our lives look as self-control begins to become evident in our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a difference in a man, an older man in a church who is marked by sober-mindedness, a dignified manner of living and self-control. In fact, Philip Towner, another commentator, says, together these terms form an overlapping network of virtues that describe a life of respectability, free from overindulgence, dissipation, and foolishness. Those three things fitting together to make up the fabric of godliness that is marked in a man who is given to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you have a thirst 
for these things, these character qualities in your life this morning. Because these really point us to Christ as he did his Father's will. Do you want your character to be marked by sober-mindedness, a dignified manner of living and self-control? Can I challenge you this morning? If those character qualities are not attractive to you, then you need to ask why. Because these are things that the Spirit of God wants to work into your life. The next three marks of a godly man are bound together with the theme of soundness. Soundness. We've seen that term several times before. Just a quick survey of where we've been in the letter and where we'll go shows that the elders that Titus with a point needed to have character and the ability to instruct in sound, there's the word, sound doctrine. That was for the benefit of the spiritual health of those that they would lead and protect. The false teachers needed to be rebuked sharply that they may be sound in faith. There's the word again. Titus was to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He needed to be a model of God's word, good works with sound speech that cannot be condemned. Here in Titus 2, verse 2, we see the call on older men to be sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. It's a concept that's woven throughout this wonderful letter. The soundness has the idea of spiritual vitality. Spiritual vitality. There's a rightness, a well-ordered to the things that are considered sound. And the underlying Greek word is the word from which we get the word today, hygiene. So if you know that you're in a hygienic or hygienic environment, things are right, things are orderly, things are healthy. So it is in the Christian realm. When we apply this word to the Christian context, it means that things are well-ordered. There's a spiritual wellness associated with learning and applying the truth of God's word. Paul is concerned in this letter, isn't he, about the connection between the truth that accords with godliness and the right living that we're expected to live out in accordance with that truth. Here in Titus 2, verse 2, Paul tells Titus that older men must be taught to be sound in faith. It might actually better be be stated, sound in the faith, the Christian faith, what it means to live for Jesus Christ. Older men are to be well instructed in and firmly convinced of those basic convictions that one ought to hold as a follower of Jesus Christ. He is assured of his justified position before the Lord on the basis of his faith. There is no plucking him out of the Father's hand because of Jesus' promises to him. He is absolutely assured of those truths. He can articulate the gospel. He can demonstrate what it looks like to apply it as he walks with the Lord and helps others do the same. He's not one to waver on the basics, but rather he teaches them to others. He is sound in his faith. Now, I wonder if I could just contextualize it a bit more in modern terms. I wonder how this man would have been blessed by Wednesday night Bible studies and working through Christian books with other believers at the First Cretan Baptist Church as they gathered for the men's breakfast on the first Saturday every month. 
But it's those things, surely, that would have led this man, as the Spirit worked, to be a man who was found sound in faith. We see in verse 2, again, that older men in the church must also be called to be sound in love. Not only sound in faith, but sound in love. With this phrase comes the idea that there's a soundness, a rightness, in the way that this man understands and lives out a loving manner of living. The word there is that familiar word, agape love, that Christ-like love that gives even when the person to whom he shows that love does not give in return. It's a love that gives even when the giver isn't given it in return. It's a self-sacrificing love in response to the sacrifice made by Jesus on his own behalf who gave himself while that man was his enemy. These older men are called to obey the Lord's command given in John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's a love grounded in Christ's humility. We've already said much about the thought life, this man being self-controlled, doing the right thing at the right time in the way that it should be done. How much do we think as men in the church about the degree of Christ's love for us and what obligation we have to love others in the same way? One of the things that I've observed, and maybe you've observed it too, in the lives of godly men, and especially in this church, is their willingness and ability to love in this way, especially in the context of a marriage. There's a sweetness in these marriages that grows, not just because of his growth, but because of his wife's as well. But there is a trend in these marriages that demonstrates that as these men learn to give of themselves, there is a loving reciprocation on the part of their wives, and these grow together, demonstrating Christ's love to the rest of the church. These godly men exemplify their willingness to give up what they want for the sake of their wives, even in the small things, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. They're examples of being sound in love. More generally, they are aware that certain pursuits and people are worth giving their lives for. Certain ministry efforts are worth pursuing because of the great love that they have for Jesus Christ which means that there are other things that they are willing to place aside in favor of ministering faithfully, both to his family and to his church. Maybe it's in the context of a discipleship relationship, a visitation, a cleaning ministry, or the care of his sick wife. Whatever it is, he demonstrates that love in his life is abounding more and more because of the grace of Jesus Christ. He's discerning between what is more important, loving the right thing, having his priorities aligned with God's will for his life. Now, take that and imagine the contrast on Crete, where people are given to love themselves and what they most want to do. What a contrast that would be. That is a radical manner of living when you put yourself up against those who were lazy, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Think of the bright, shining star of gospel living against that dark backdrop. And then realize why it is that older men are called to be 
sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love. Those are things that are expected of older men in Crete and older men in this congregation. It necessarily follows that us younger men are called to be striving toward that standard. So if you're a younger man, if you are a younger Christian man here this morning, hear the call along with me to be pursuing that manner of living by pursuing Christ's will for your lives. There's one more mark of godliness toward which the older men must be exhorted, according to this text. Older men must be taught to be sound in steadfastness. Sound in steadfastness. The word steadfastness appears in different translations in the New American Standard Bible that some of you read from. It's perseverance. In the KJV, it is patience. In the New International Version, it's endurance. I think we get the picture. It's a walking forward with God's help despite the trials we face. The idea is patient continuance in following the Lord. And both older men and younger men who imitate them are called to demonstrate that in their lives. We're called to be models of endurance who are convinced of God's goodness and faithfulness and worthiness to be worshipped for a lifetime even when life is hard. Much like the godly older man who is sound in faith and fully assured of what he believes, how the gospel applies to keep him in the fold of God, so he's convinced of how good and faithful his God is. He knows his God will carry him through and therefore he follows after him in obedience. He is sound in steadfastness. Think about some of the trials that an older man in Crete, perhaps an older man here in this congregation, would be called to walk through as a man who is also called to be sound in steadfastness. Perhaps the most crushing burden would be the death of a spouse or another close loved one. Even in that trial, these older men are called to be sound in steadfastness. And we can see that The burden increases as year passes on after year, as even more loved ones pass on and leave him behind. Perhaps it's ill health that becomes an issue issue for that older man. Some of you know these afflictions at this moment in time. The strength of your youthful bodies has begun to wane. You ought Not to think that the Lord has no purpose for you in his church. Indeed, he does. But the reality is that your bodies are beginning to fall apart as you await that resurrected body in the glory to come. The trials that older men, older women have to go through often involve physical affliction. I really love how the word of God makes this so clear to us. Ecclesiastes paints a vivid picture of what it looks like as the body ultimately breaks down, these are the challenges that are faced by older men in the church that they are called to go through with a soundness in faith, uh, soundness in faith and steadfastness. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 3 to 7, pictures the, the ultimate breakdown of the body as Solomon writes about the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent 
and the grinders cease because they are few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. His eyesight begins to wane. The doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up, the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken up the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Hopefully you can hear in that text the reality that the old man, the old woman's body begins to wane. In light of all of that physical suffering, in light of the grief that piles upon grief as loved one departs after loved one, how should the older man respond in the church to the reality of becoming old and frail as grief adds to that grief? According to our text this morning, he should respond as one who has been taught to be sound in steadfastness. He should be ready to endure hard trials in reliance on the God who has been so faithful to lead him through thus far. Now, I can't help but imagine that the truth of Jesus' return in Titus 2, verse 13, would be a wonderful motivation to endure these trials patiently in the advanced age that he would be experiencing, perhaps even as he had poor health and grief that had added to grief. Can you imagine how someone on Crete, perhaps saved out of a lifestyle of wrecking his body through all manner of drunkenness and sexual immorality, who had been met on the path to his normal ways by Jesus Christ. Perhaps Christ made it an appointment for him to meet a minister of the gospel who confronted him with his sin and gave him the hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. He came to know Jesus. But then he wrestled with the regret of squandering a life of blessing that God had given to him. Fifty, sixty years had passed and he's come to the point where he's realized, I have wasted my life. I have so much guilt. Christ assures him through the gospel that all is forgiven, my friend. And by the way, you have the hope of eternal life and a body that will sing my glory for all of eternity, praising and thanking me for what I have done for you. some point, that man came to know the excitement of having the gospel applied directly to his life. You picture all of the suffering that he might be experiencing in his body. Can you imagine the anticipation of a man like that who sought to grow in godliness in response to the sweetness of grace that he had experienced from Jesus Christ as he awaited the day where Jesus would come and gather him with all of his other saints? He'd wake up, grief-stricken, pain-afflicted, and he'd say, maybe today would be the day. Maybe he's coming today. 
The sun has come up again. He's put air in my lungs. Maybe today will be the day that Jesus Christ will come. Gather me to himself and I will see him as he is. I will become like him. I'll see him face to face, face to face and finally be free from the shackles of this sin-afflicted body. I will be free of the burden of guilt that comes every time I forget the goodness of his grace toward me. I will be able with all of my being and my future resurrected body to say with all of God's people, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I won't be distracted at all because of the newness of life I am now able to walk in with consistency. That man's going to be waking up every day saying, come Lord Jesus. Hope like that Assurance of salvation and the life to come like that will keep a man pressing on toward Christ-likeness even in the midst of hard trials, will it not? Let me ask you, do you have that hope this morning? Are you so grounded and rooted in Christ? Have you been saved by His grace that your hope is in Him and His return? Have you turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you have that hope as you suffer all manner of sufferings this morning? May today be the day that you know his salvation in your soul. Now let me ask you a question. Can you think of why the example of godly men would be so, exa- so important in a church like Crete and a church like this? Why is it so important that we would have examples to follow? Because, brothers and sisters, we need these examples to follow. We understand that Christ is waiting for us. We understand that we're awaiting his return, but we need to know that it is possible for the race to be finished. We need examples to rejoice with at the end of their lives who are saying with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is, not there may be, there is. I have full assurance of faith that there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but for all who have loved is appearing. If I might address the older man among us this morning, I want you to listen clearly to me. Note this well, brothers, you must persevere. You must persevere. We need your example to show that it is possible to run this race well so that we can follow in your faithful footsteps. Got some concluding thoughts. We've seen these six marks of a godly man this morning. We focused on what older men are to be taught in the church so that they would be found walking faithfully according to the gospel convictions that they say they hold because Jesus has done these things for them. We focused on what older men would be taught if us more youthful men would become the godly men that these men are called to be, then we need to be following in their footsteps. And you godly men need to be bringing us along so that we might follow those footsteps faithfully. We too must be following after models of sober-mindedness, dignity, self-control, soundness in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. The good news is that the grace of God has appeared, making salvation available to all of us. The transforming grace 
available to us in the gospel, is at work among us. Change is possible as we live out life in accordance with these gospel convictions that we've seen. The Lord is training us to renounce ungodliness and unworldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave us, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May you older men be found faithful to walk in light of these things this morning. May we younger men be striving toward that goal alongside of them. And may we, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, be encouraging the older men in the godliness that Christ has worked into them thus far. Let's be spurring them on to pursue even more that godliness that we see in them. Let us be an encouragement to these older men this morning. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this text this morning. We're so thankful for the clear clear direction that comes from your word to us as it is opened up, as your spirit works, for these godly men to be pursuing godliness. These men, Lord, are called to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. God, I'm so thankful for the godly older men at Emmanuel Baptist Church and the examples that they are to me, to the rest of this congregation, as we follow after Christ and live lives of holiness, for he is holy. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for these examples. May we be found this morning encouraging these older men to persevere in those good things. May you work in the hearts of us younger men to be pursuing those things that we too might be examples as we all await for that wonderful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things and we ask that you be honored through the remainder of our worship service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.